This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hey, everybody. This is Fernando Angelucci. I'm a self-storage investor. Uh, done $150 million worth of storage in the last three years across the United States. Um, you know, take a listen to uh, our two-part series here on the Let's Get Real Estate podcast, where real people do real estate. Hey, everybody. It's Danielle Chason here with the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. And I am excited today to have our angel of light for self-storage, <laughs> Fernando Angelucci, on the show. Woo, woo. How you doing, Fernando? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on, Danny. Hey, I am uh, super, super stoked to have you on the show because we've not talked about self-storage and you have an amazing story to share and uh, how, how you got into this You in your 20s, a millionaire in your third, actually a millionaire in your 20s, I think, right? Mm -hmm. 29. 29, hit a million and living the life. So for those of you that are listening, I met... Fernando in Las Vegas at a real estate event. Actually, you were there on vacation and I was there at an event. <laughs> and we met through mutual connection and uh, just loved your story. And I thought, you know, I have to have you on the show. And uh, since then, we've been connecting and, and becoming friends and I'm loving that. And I just want you to educate me and my audience today about self-storage. Sure. Before we get yeah, into no that, though, can we, um, can we get into... A little bit more of your backstory. I'd love to understand a little bit about how you got into real estate and then more specifically how you ended up diverting into self-storage. Yeah, I have a pretty interesting story. So um, I'm the son of two immigrants from Brazil and, uh, you know, they had kind of the traditional immigrant mindset, which is you come to the United States, you know, get good grades, get a good job work at a fortune 50 company and retire with a pension. That was always kind of the, the path that was beaten into me. I had the only, I had three options. I could either be an attorney, a doctor, an engineer. And so engineering seemed to be the easiest one of the three. So, um, that was kind of the plan all the way up until I was 16. When I was 16, I was somewhat of a class clown in my English class. And, uh, I was getting, know, homework to read these books that I didn't think were going to help me really in life. You know, these fiction books. I think it was Catcher in the Rye, which is what I had to read and I didn't want to. So I kept bothering the teacher and eventually she said, all right, meet me after class. So I thought I was in trouble, but turns out that she wanted to actually give me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So she said, you wanted a, a book that's going to help you in life. This is the book that is going to change your life. So read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I was not a good reader, or at least I didn't think I was a very good reader at the time. I was more a math science guy. And I devoured the book in two days. I read through study halls, through lunch hours, through gym, like everything. And I, I realized this is the path that I want to go forward. So I told my dad and he was not very pleased because I basically said, I don't want to be an engineer. I want to be a real estate investor. To which he said over my dead body. So uh, <laughs> I said, go, still go to school, get an engineering degree. And then if this real estate thing doesn't work out, then at least you have something to fall back on. So I actually did do that. I, I went to University of Illinois. I got my engineering degree, but all throughout school, I was devouring books on real estate. I was going to local RIA meetings, real estate investor association meetings. Um, I, I took some classes from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 
uh, or from his his legacy wealth group, I think is what it was called at the time. And lo and behold, when I graduated or before I graduated, I actually got that job that my parents thought was the dream for me. So I got a job at a Fortune 50 company as an engineer. I was making, I think, $60,000 out of school. I had a 401k match. I had a pension, which is very rare nowadays. Um, I had an expense account. They gave me a company truck. So I was, you know, I was set up. But I found out that I really hated having somebody tell me what to do. I was not very good at having bosses, if you will. So uh, within 13 months, I, I quit that job and started wholesaling real estate, which I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar with. You put a property under contract, and then you sell that contract to another investor at a higher higher number, and then you make that spread. So very quickly from that point on, I then started flipping the properties because I started seeing how much my buyers were making. And then from flipping, I saw you know, how much easier the lives of the landlords were. So then I started buying and holding single family homes, started buying and holding uh, multifamily homes. But let me back up, back up a little bit because I think the most interesting part of this story was how I got that startup capital. So being the son of an immigrant, I was always taught that debt is extremely bad, any form of debt. You know, my parents bought their houses in cash. They bought their their cars in cash. If you don't have the money to buy something, then you wouldn't buy it because leverage was just not an option. So the way I started the real estate business or how I got the funds to do that, where one night I um, came back from a rich dad event and they taught me the strategy of how you can apply for credit cards. So in one night I applied for 64 credit cards and the next week I got, uh, so the reason I did 64 in one night or actually in a period of two hours is because then all the other credit cards don't see the credit pulls from the other cards, right? There's a little bit of a delay or at least at the time there was. So they didn't see me applying for all these. I ended up getting 12 of them approved. And when they all showed up a week later, I cash advanced $97,000 of high interest rate credit card debt into my bank account. And that's how I started investing in you know the courses and the marketing campaigns and immediately lost $30,000, like gone, just poof. So I had to dig myself back up from that. My dad wouldn't talk to me for a couple of weeks. He thought I was making a huge mistake. But in the end, he you know, he believed in me and, you know, he supported me. He said, if it didn't work out, I always had a, you know, a bed or a couch to stay on. <laughs> That's awesome. So fast forward a little bit. I am running a pretty successful wholesaling company. We do, or we did 70 transactions a year in uh, four different markets, Chicago, Illinois, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I was getting really burnt out because it was a high volume business and, you know, you have to deal with a lot of emotions, if you will, on the seller side. So I started really focusing on building up my rental portfolio, got up to about 69 rental properties. Um, and then I started facing all the issues that come with being a landlord investing in, let's say, class C or class D areas. I had assets on the south side of Chicago, which is a notoriously uh dangerous area, at least the areas that I were investing in were, were, were pretty dangerous, Englewood, if anybody's ever heard of it. Um, and that came with its own set of challenges with tenants, uh, non-payment, drug use, uh, guns, violence, things like that. And I was just getting really burnt out. So in 2016, I thought the market was going to crash in the next two years. I was so wrong, <laughs> but I'd rather be early than late. And I started selling all of my rental holdings and looking for something to reinvest into. And I wanted something that 
would not give me the same problems that I had as a as a habitation based landlord, if you will, or habitation based real estate investor. Um, so it came down to really three things. It was uh, the things that caused me issues were tenants, toilets, and trash. So how could I invest in real estate without tenants, toilets, and trash, and still get cash flow? And that's when I fell on uh, self storage. And since then, I, I bought my first self storage facility in August of 2018 for a million bucks. Um, I didn't have the money to buy it, so I put it under contract, and then I just figured it out along the way, bringing in partners and debt. Uh, and then fa fast forward four years later, um, as of yesterday, I've done $166 million worth of self-storage. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I did not know that you had such a big set of kahunas. So you're a huge <laughs> risk taker, apparently. Like You don't have fear in taking on risk. So I would love to dive a little bit deeper into that because I think a lot of people are very averse to, they want to have all the answers before they put anything under contract. They want to know where the money's coming from. They want to know. And I, I think part of the ability that you have in order to do that is that you have the confidence to know that you're going to make it happen. But what else do you need in order to be able to do that other than the mental fortitude really? Yeah, so it's it's funny when you say, you know, I'm I'm a risk taker. It's actually the opposite. People really know me as being extremely risk averse. Um, I don't ride roller coasters. I don't gamble. You know, even though I was in Vegas, um, <laughs> it's funny. So I, I started having to put together mental models to clear some of these hurdles. So I was an engineer by training, which means naturally I was subject to analysis paralysis. I was that guy that tried to get 100% of the information, but the problem is. When you try to wait to get 100% of the information, the deal has you know gone and passed. So I had to start getting comfortable with making decisions with 75% information, 80, 85% information, and then creating a plan to mitigate the unknown risks um, that I didn't know of going forward. So that was one thing. And then the second thing was doing these fear-setting exercises. I actually learned this from Tim Ferriss. So I always say that fear is an acronym. It is false evidence appearing real. Um, and what we end up doing, because we're these, you know, highly evolved animals, they have these prefrontal cortexes, which allow us to experience the emotion of simulation, really. You know, like, oh, well, what happens if I lose my job and I have to live on the street and you get all this cortisol, you know, fear response, stress response, even though that's not actually happening or may not happen at all. So this fear setting exercise is pretty simple. You write, you, you draw two lines on a piece of paper and you number the lines from one to 10 on both of them. The first line is what is the worst case scenario? What is the worst thing that can happen from me making this decision? Zero being nothing changes, 10 being I'm dead, nine being I'm in prison for life. So just to kind of give you the range, right? And then after you, you, allocate the number on the first line. The second line is what is the positive effect of making this decision? Zero being my life doesn't change at all. And 10 being I'm living my dream life, right? So when I, when I started making these first decisions, especially with like the credit card debt, I said, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Well, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to go to prison. You know, worst case scenario, um, I'll call my dad and ask him to bring me in if everything fails and, you know, let me get back on, on my feet, sleep on the couch and have some groceries paid for. And then even worse case than that, say that he doesn't want to bring me in. Um, I can live in my car. I can live off of, you know, ramen for a little bit. I was 20, 
22 or 23 years old when I was doing this. So it's not like I had a lot of people relying on me uh, for financial stability. So I ended up giving the allocation a three as far as how bad can it get from making a decision, quitting my job, you know, going into to real estate, taking out all this credit card debt. And then I said, okay, let's look at five, 10 years down the line. What is my life going to look like if I accomplish the things that I want to? And I gave it a nine. So I said, okay, three versus nine. This seems like a, a good trade-off here from risk versus reward. And so that's how I, even to this day, this is how I, I make a lot of these decisions where I start getting an initial fear response from my gut. I say, okay, let's just sit down and let's look at this logically and not emotionally. So that was one of the ways I was able to kind of conquer that fear and and take the risk and really realize that I was overblowing the downside and not even paying attention whatsoever to what are the positives that can come from these decisions. That's a great point. I think a lot of people, you're right, what they do once fear shows up, they just focus on the fear and they don't focus on the positives or benefits to moving forward. And one of my coaches taught me that's very similar to what you're saying. What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? And what's the most likely scenario? And again, it's just redirecting your brain to start thinking about it logically as opposed to allowing that emotion to control your thoughts and hence influence your decisions. So typically, you know, with fear, we're looking at worst case scenario, we hope for the best case scenario, but neither typically happen. It's usually the most likely scenario that we conjure up. And that's usually what happens. So I love that. So um, moving forward, though, now you have all of these, have you have you have you gotten rid of all of your residential rentals? Or are you still in? Do you still have some residential properties and some self storage? Is it a little bit peppered? No, so uh, 100% self-storage on the active business. Um, I'm, I invest in other syndications where they have different asset classes because then I don't have to deal with the troubles of running those asset classes. But I have I have no residential holdings whatsoever. I don't even own a house. I, I rent because I just don't want to deal with it. Wow, that's actually kind of interesting. I didn't see yeah. that coming. Okay. <laughs> so one thing you shared with me is that you have – you've developed – when you went into self-storage and you were trying to figure out what asset class you wanted to move from when you were trying to get out of the residential space, you came mm-hmm. up with a list of nine reasons why to invest in self-storage. And I'd love to dive deeper into that and, and educate perhaps my audience on a different asset class that maybe they hadn't considered before. Yeah. So I'm a, again, engineer by training. So I'm a very data driven person. Um, I've been getting a lot better at relying on my gut recently, but that's because now I have this history and experience to draw upon. So the very first thing I looked at, of course, is, you know, what asset classes produce the highest returns historically over multiple real estate cycles or multiple economic cycles. And so I was looking at, you know, four or five different, um, investments in earnest and almost eight or nine truly across what I was looking at. So I was looking at uh, investing in the stock market, so S&P 500, investing in private mortgages, so like hard money lending, things like that, Uh, retail buildings, office buildings, multifamily, industrial, residential, and self-storage. And then for my base case, where I can get really good data across all of them was between the periods of 1994 and about 2017. So 23, 24 years, roughly. 
So when you look at that period of time, you saw that the S&P 500 in general had an average annual return of about 7.5%. Multifamily, on the other hand, did substantially better. Same thing with residential at about 13.3%, 13.4% return. But then self-storage is way above everything else at about 17.4%. So now 13.4 to 17.4 may not seem like a lot, but you got to realize that 4% is compounding over time, over this 23, 24 year period of time. So let's say in 1994, you had $100,000 to invest. What would that value be in 2017? So if you put it into the S&P 500, you'd have a little over half a million dollars. If you put them in apartments or residential, you'd have about 1.7 to $1.8 million, so substantially better return. But then again, with that 4% extra compounding rate, if you put that $100,000 into self-storage, you'd have a little over $4.1 million um, by 2017. So over double the return that apartments and residential produced over that same period of time. So that was extremely fascinating to me because when I was first looking into self-storage, no one was really talking about it. You know, I, I always joke around that nowadays self-storage is like the, that, that girl at, at the school dance that takes off her glasses and then lets down her hair and shakes it all around. You actually realize like, wow, this is a super sexy asset and you don't, you have no idea. Right. Awesome. <laughs> so on the, on the flip side though, I say, okay, well, typically things that have higher return also have a higher risk profile. So let's look at, you know, downside. Let's, let's look at specific periods of time over that, that large data set where we were in down markets and let's see how they, how they, uh, returned yield. So, uh, you know, everyone remembers, I mean, if you've been in this for more than 10 years, everybody remembers the, you know, global financial crisis, 2007 to 2009. So during that time, uh, the S and P 500 lost 22% of its value, which is a pretty significant hit to a lot of people's portfolios. Uh, multifamily at that time from a REIT level, I'm going to give you REIT data because it's the easiest to, to pull upon from a REIT level dropped about 7%. Um, same thing with residential, about 7% in value, but you know, not all of us have unlimited, you know, REIT money coming from the, you know, the capital market. So I knew a lot of investors that completely lost their shirt. I mean, I'm talking 50% to hundred percent loss in their assets getting seized by banks, over leveraged the whole deal. Self-storage during that time only lost 3.5% or 3.8% of its value across all the REITs. And that's because, again, they're also large beasts that are slow moving and slow turning. I actually know a lot of self-storage investors that made some of their largest fortunes during that time. And we can cover why that is during that time. But let's let's move forward to something a little bit more recent. Um, the you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. So according to TREP, which is a commercial mortgage-backed securities research firm, of the 1,700 CMBS loans that were made to self-storage investors in the first three quarters of the pandemic, so Q, Q2 to Q4 of 2020, only three of those 1,700 loans were more than 30 days delinquent. So that is a 0.17% delinquency rate across the entire portfolio of mortgage-backed securities that were issued during that time. At that same time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% higher or 18 times the default rate of self-storage. So huge difference, right? Even if we look back 
to the 07, 08, 09 period of time. During that time, multifamily was defaulting 40 times, 40x the rate of self-storage. So what I found here is that there is this, this, this mismatch in risk versus reward in the self-storage space. And we found that it happens to be extremely recession tolerant, recession tolerant or recession resilient, if you will, when you look at the last four major recessions that have occurred in the last 40, 50 years, roughly. So when I look at that, I mean, you look at why, you know, what is driving this and where, where are these defaults coming from? So of course I started looking at bank data. So I looked at Intech Solutions uh, data. I looked at Wells Fargo Securities data. I looked at uh, TREP data, National Association of REITs. And what I found is not only does self-storage have the lowest default rate of any asset class, but in addition to that, it, in the rare case that there was a default, it also had the lowest average loss to the lender per default as well. So this brings me to my third point, which is because the bank saw the safety and the balance of the portfolio that self-storage provides, they start wanting to get more of these loans. So the easiest way they can do that is by pricing them extremely competitively. So all of a sudden, banks are fighting over each other to give us leverage on these types of deals to balance the portfolio, especially in times of uncertainty and turmoil. So here's a perfect example. Uh, August or... September of 2020. So like this is peak raging pandemic. I was getting ground up construction loans for nine to $10 million with 36 months interest only at 4% rate, um, five-year balloon on 25-year amortization, things that kind of unheard of when most other investors, their bankers weren't even calling them back. You know, they were just completely ghosting them. So that was a huge piece for me. I said, okay, one of the reasons why we love self-storage or why we love real estate in general is the ability to use leverage other people's money to build our own net worth and our own wealth. So very interesting statistics um, on the on the loss side. I have another case study. in. So this is prior to the pandemic. Uh, Q4 of 2019, I bought a Class C facility in Tennessee and the the loan package, I, I showed it to a couple banks. I showed each bank their competing term sheets. And what we ended up getting was just phenomenal. I got a five-year balloon on a 20-year AM at a five and a quarter interest rate. First year, all interest-only payments. And here's the kicker. It was a 0% down loan. And not only was it a 0% down loan, they gave me $68,000 in cash at the closing table to do repairs. So it was actually over 100% leverage on that loan. I bought that property for seven hundred twenty-five thousand, and day one it appraised for one point two million. Um, I actually just sold that property for one point eight million this week. So, really good return on investment over what three years? Not even. Wow, that's incredible. So, it kind of leads me into my next question. I wanted to ask: When you're doing these self-storage facilities, are you buying them already done? Now that one was a C-class building. So you're buying some that are distressed and bringing them up to, to snuff. Are you um, building some as well? Do you source out land and build them? Or do you always buy them when they're already existing? Yeah, so when I started, I wanted to make sure I was doing it more 
conservatively. So before I even started buying them, I started wholesaling them because if I'm able to sell a self-storage facility to someone that has 10, 15 years experience at a higher price than I got it under contract, that means I'm doing my underwriting correctly. So in the beginning, I just wholesaled them to mitigate my risk. And my only liability truly was my earnest money on the contract. Once I started feeling comfortable, then I actually started going after existing cash flow. So buying mom and pop facilities that were producing cash flow that had easy value add. And it's one of the the points that I also talk about, you know, the nine reasons why I went to self-storage is the fragmented market that that creates opportunity in the self-storage space. So there's only about, I'd say maybe 70,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. But the ownership breakdown, it's very interesting. 16 to 18%, I'd say probably nowadays, maybe 18 to 20% of the, all the facilities in the United States are owned by the six largest publicly traded self-storage REITs or real estate investment trusts. The next nine to 10% are owned by the next 100 largest operators. I'm in that group of 100, right? That means that 70% of the facilities in the United States are owned by these mom and pop operators or people that own two or fewer facilities. They're typically not operating them as a professional. It's more of a hobby. They're on their second or third retirement. So I figured, okay, this is a good place to get started because there is a discrepancy in market rates versus what I can get them off market. So started off on the the value add side where there was already cash flow coming in. It was easy to get debt. It was easy to operate them and it was hard to lose money, if you will. Now, as I started to build a larger and larger and larger portfolio because of this grand goal that I had, um, when I started this business, we decided that by 2030, we would have uh, eight, eight and a half million square feet of self-storage, which would equate in today's dollars to about a $1.6 billion portfolio. So the problem that I was facing is a lot of these mom and pop facilities are much smaller. They're 20,000 net rentable square feet, 25,000 net rentable square feet. And I wanted to buy things that were 80, 100, 120,000 net rentable square feet. But the problem was as soon as I started playing with the big boys, cap rates started plummeting, you know, severely. You know, I was originally when I was buying these mom and pop deals, I was buying them anywhere between an 8% cap rate to a 12% cap rate day one. And then when I started playing with the big boys with the the nicer grade assets, then all of a sudden cap rates are at four, four and a half percent. So literally one third the return that I was originally making. I said, this doesn't make sense. So I said, okay, well, if I can't buy them, then let's build them. So I started sourcing land. Uh, usually four to five acres on major thoroughfares, um, you know, good traffic counts on the curb cut, um, you know, good demographics around, you know, high median incomes. Typically, we like to see, you know, 60 to $100,000 uh, median household income in an area. Um, and so those projects were very interesting because now I'm building them at an internal cap rate of about 9%. So much better than buying them at four and a half percent. So the interesting part was I wasn't ready to go to that point until I knew I had the cash flow to sustain that debt service. Because, you know, when I was buying mom and pop facilities, they were a million bucks or less than a million dollars. Some of them were like one and a half million. And to build these large class A multi-story, you know, REIT grade self-storage facilities, these are 10 to 12 million dollar builds where... 
you know, I'm burning thirty-five dollars to $50,000 a month in interest payments. So if I don't have a good cash flowing portfolio to offset or mitigate that risk, I can get myself in a lot of trouble very quickly. So we started building those assets and those are the ones that were, were big check. It was, I always kind of use residential terms to help, you know, the listeners understand. So the mom and pop deals were like my buy and hold rentals in like class C class B minus areas. Right. I knew they were going to value add. I knew I was going to put in a little bit of rehab, but it wasn't gonna be a major lift. And then my ground up developments were like my fix and flip properties in the class A neighborhoods, right? The really nice school districts, gated communities, things like that. Um, higher risk, higher reward though. So on those projects, I'd build them for 10 to 12 million. And then ideally, once they were stabilized at about 90% occupancy, I'd sell them off for 18 to 25 million. And I'd get these huge checks that would come out. So that, that was working really well until the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, you know, my steel orders were eight, nine weeks out, or I'm sorry, eight or nine months out. Some materials, I literally couldn't even get them at all. If I tried, um, my steel costs went up 500%, um, in a period of six to eight months, my lumber costs went up like two, 300%. It was ridiculous. So I had to figure out a way to pivot. And so this is when we found the third leg of our three-legged stool of how we invest in self-storage. So first we have, like I said, the mom and pop value add deals. Then we have the ground developments on the other side of the spectrum. But then I kind of had this hybrid model. So while the pandemic was raging, I realized that a lot of big box retail, although it was already dying because of the Amazons of the world, the pandemic really put a death nail in the coffin for those types of assets. So then all of a sudden I realized that I could pick up these giant shells and then convert them into storage. So this is what we call adaptive reuse conversions. I'd pick up a Sears building or I'd pick up a Walmart or a Kmart that, you know, has been dormant for two to three years and turn them into class A self-storage. And that is a way that we were able to really pivot because now all of a sudden on my ground up developments, where I was initially, you know, building them for $110, $120 a foot, and it would take 12 to 18 months, or 12 to 14 months, I'm sorry, to build. Um, now I'm building these things for 65 to 75 bucks a foot because the envelope or the shell is already up. And instead of taking 12 to 14 months to build, I was now closer to you know, six to eight months to build. So that helped on the, on the development side as well as the interest carry that I had to experience. So that's my three main legs is value add, ground up development, and then adaptive reuse conversions. All right, everybody. Let me tell you this episode when we recorded it went long and I have to cut it right here just because I want to honor people's time. So this has been part one of two. Come back next week because you won't want to miss it. This is where Fernando is going to dive deep in the weeds, how to vet the properties, how to, how to vet the markets, and how to manage them remotely. So come back next week to catch the rest of the show, part two. And don't forget to rate the show, subscribe to it, and share it with your friends if you're finding value. This is Danielle signing off for the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.
Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you are looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.